Amen. Hello. I'm uh, Trent Marks, and this is Tana Marks, my lovely wife. We are uh, members here, uh, and we belong to Mark Roar's uh, community group, uh, and we're going to be reading out of the Zechariah's Prophecy, uh, Luke 1, 67 through 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Though the grass may wither and the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. We were in the hallway and Trenton was telling me that the feather, the feather doesn't fade, but that's all right. We almost got it. But yeah, thank you, Trenton and Tana. I uh, appreciate you guys. Thank you uh, for reading and opening this up. And uh, just uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Mark. If I haven't met you uh, personally, uh, grateful for you to be here. Um, grateful for uh, the series that we're going through through Advent. Uh, this uh, one that we're going to go through today. As we just read, is Zechariah's prophecy in Luke, uh, chapter 1, 67 to 79. So if you have your Bible, if you want to turn there, that'd be great. We also have Bibles available. Um, Matt, in the back, if you want, we have ESV Bibles or Tanner over here. If you want, just raise your hand. Uh, we'd love to give you one of those, and so you can follow along with us. It'll be on the screen as well, but it's uh, good to have it in your hand as well, so you can flip through and see it. Um, but like I said, this is our second uh, uh, series and uh, at our of our three-part series going through uh, Advent. Uh, last week, Tanner preached uh, through Mary. I'm preaching today through Zechariah Prophecy, and Matt will end us next week. Um, and so uh, join us for that. Um, and as Tanner said, the 26th, we will ha have a Sabbath Sunday, and we'll, we're just encouraging everyone to worship with their families. But so glad that you're here today to worship with us and, and uh, to worship our Lord during this season. As I was thinking through, uh, just kind of a, like an, an, an intro into the text I was just thinking through Advent, and as Tanner mentioned last week, Advent is describing uh, the first coming of Christ, right? Advent is, is describing that Christ has entered into the world. That's what Christmas is, should be about, right? Uh, to, to most of us in this room, that's what Christmas means, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but to some people uh, in our families, even in our workplaces, and in the world, uh, Christmas is just another... Uh, time to gather, which it is a time to gather, it's a time to, to celebrate and, and, and receive gifts and give gifts. Uh, me and Yadi were in China at one point, and we were sharing uh, the gospel with these um, uh, students at a Chinese university, and we asked them the question, hey, who is Jesus to you? And uh, what they said was, is Jesus Santa Claus? And me and Yadi chuckled at first, but then I was like, wow, they're serious. That's what they think. That's what they see maybe from, from the Western world, they see that Santa, Santa, Santa is everything. 
And so uh, I don't want to take it for granted that we all know what Advent is about. And so, yeah, Advent is, the, is, is celebrating the coming of Jesus, the birth of Christ. Um, but I think for, for most of us in this room, uh, I know most of you uh, somewhat, uh, that if, we've grown, if you've grown up in church like I have, uh, this time of season can be just another time of, okay, here's the Christmas trees in the room. You know, it's cold outside. We're going to come and, and uh, talk about Jesus, Jesus' birth. Right, it's a time, and those are good things. But I think we can go through the motions in a way um, of just of just coming to a service and saying, "Oh, here we're going to learn about Jesus' birth again." I already know this; I've heard this since I was eight years old, right? But I want our time this morning uh, and, and to be one of refocusing our attention on the true meaning of why we celebrate. I want our time this morning to not just to hear another story of Jesus' birth, but as our, as we go through the Word of God again. I want our time to bring one of amazement and rejoicing and blessing to our God who has truly visited us. Because that's what Christmas is all about, that Jesus, God in the flesh, has come down from perfect heaven to this broken world. Which, if you truly just meditate on that just for a second, it's just amazing to think about. And so I pray that during this time, as we open God's word, that we are again, those who of us who are in Christ, are refreshed and reminded that Christ has come for you and has come for me and has come for the world, for those who would call in the name of Jesus to be saved from their sins and receive eternal life. So this morning as we're going, uh, as, we, as I said, we're going to look at Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, a little background on Zechariah. Zechariah is, is the father of John the Baptist, as, as it was read um, in, in John. He was the forerunner before Christ. Uh, this blessing that we're going to read uh, that Zechariah proclaims says uh, about God is, is it's similar to what Tanner preached on in Mary's uh, prophecy last week of the coming of Christ's birth. Um, the earth, as we, as we think about the history uh, up to this point uh, in context, if you go back uh, to the book of Matthew and then one book uh, to the left, it's the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. And from the book of Malachi to the birth of Christ, it was 400 years of darkness. And what is it, what is it called? The intertestamental period. The inter-testamental, I needed Devante to say that for me because it was hard for me to remember. But it's this period of darkness where uh, the Israelites, God's people, have not heard from God uh, for, for, for over 400 years is what, is, is what it's uh, mentioned. So from the, the last book of Malachi in the Old Testament uh, to, to the, the birth of Christ, it's been over 400 years of darkness, meaning, meaning God has not spoken. So God has been silent. But as, if you, as we'll look at today in the book of Malachi as well, uh, given which is the last book, we see a promise given that says, at the end of the book of Malachi, it says this. It says, The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You should go out leaping like calves from the stall. And I love that because it's, 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 it's saying, yes, you're in darkness, but the book of Malachi is prophesying and foreshadowing and it says, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And as we'll see today, that's referring to Christ, uh, the Son of God. So the people of Israel, God's people, knew this promise. And despite over 400 years of darkness, the people were looking towards the sunrise, for the sunrise to, to rise. They were awaiting the coming Savior, who is the light of the world, who causes the darkness to flee and unending joy to fill the hearts and our hearts. So let us look to see how the bright shining star breaks into history. And to this end, I want to pray for us and we'll jump into the text. So again, thank you, Father, for this morning. God, I pray that as we spend these next few moments 
together opening your word. Father, I pray that you would refocus our hearts on you, God, this morning as we have gone through, through our, throughout our week this past week, and maybe it was one of sorrow, maybe it was one of joy, maybe it was one of, of anxiety, maybe it was one of, of, uh, of hurt or pain, or maybe it was one of, of just rejoicing all week. God, whatever, uh, whatever we bring into this room uh, from this past week, God, I pray that you refocus our hearts and our minds on you, God, uh, to know that you are our hope, and in the midst of all of the things going on in our life and in this world, uh, God, we can look to you, and you have broken into history uh, by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And so therefore, in spite of everything, we do have hope and, uh, and lasting hope. And so, Lord, I pray to that end that you would remind us of that, Lord, and refocus our attention on you. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. So before we jump into the main part of the text, uh, I want us to to kind of get to know who Zechariah is, because if we just jump into what Trenton and Tana uh, read, uh, we'll kind of we'll won't really understand uh, the story of, of Zechariah, and so I want us to really understand who he is right quick. Um, so if you would, turn uh, back uh, to Luke uh, 1, uh, verses 5 through 7 with me, uh, as we'll look at uh, a little bit of the history of the background of, of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And so read with me uh, Luke uh, 1, 5-7, through 7, and it says this. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abihai, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So without going too much into these verses, um, we see here that Zechariah and his wife, wife Elizabeth, as it says, are righteous and blameless, right? And it says they, um, they, they uh, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so when we see this word righteousness and blameless, uh, not that they're perfect, not that they've never sinned, but these, this couple, this godly couple is pursuing the Lord and they are wanting to honor him with their lives. As we see Zechariah as a priest, and his wife Elizabeth, and so they are people that are, are walking and, and striving to live a holy life. Zechariah, again, was a priest who served, uh, who served God on behalf of the people. Uh, again, we see in verse 6 that he was surely a man who knew the Old Testament scriptures, as, as Elizabeth was, that the, again, they are righteous and blameless, meaning that they wanted to honor God, and so the way that we honor God, right, we have to know his word, and so we know uh, as we see from there that Zechariah and Elizabeth knew God's word and therefore they were able to strive to honor God in doing that. Um, after Luke tells us uh, this in verse 6, we see, however, in verse 7, that they were not able to have a child because, of, because it says Elizabeth was barren and they were advanced in years. And I think that's a, a nice way of saying that they were really old, <laughs> right? And not just in their 40s and 50s, but I think it's even farther up in age. Uh, to where uh, you would think that they're too old and there's no way Elizabeth can even bear a child now, even if she could, even if she wasn't barren, right? And so this is a hard, when I was reading this, this is a hard thing for me to understand why God would not allow this godly couple to have children, right? It says they are righteous and blameless. They followed God's commandments and statutes, right? Not out of a, I have to, but I want to. I want to honor God with my life. But yet verse 7 says they were unable to bear a child. But I want us to see as we continue 
uh, why God allows this to happen um, and uh, to see next that God's purpose and that his timing is in fact perfect. So jump over with me to verse uh, 13 and 14 of Luke. As verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And verse 16 says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So we see here that the couple did not let their inability to have children hinder their prayers. Right, by, by realizing that when the angel came to him, it says, Do not be afraid, for your prayers have been heard. So it doesn't say that they've been praying, but from the context of Scripture, we see that Zachariah and Elizabeth were people that, in spite of their inability to bear a child, continued to pursue God in prayer and continued to trust God's will uh, for them to have a child if that was his will. Although there must have been sadness, they continued to lift their request, their trustworthy and heavenly Father. Verse 13 shows us that the angel came to com- has come to confirm to Zechariah that their prayers have been heard and that they shall bear a son and name him John. The future son of theirs will prepare the way for Jesus to come and will turn many, as verse 16 says, of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So with this promise being spoken to Zechariah, Zechariah we would think, would respond in faith and say, oh Lord, thank you for hearing my prayers. Thank you for giving us a child. But just the opposite happens. In verse 18 and 20, it says, after hearing this, that promise of his son coming, Zechariah said to the angel in verse 18, how shall I know this? For I am old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said, answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their time. So we see, uh, rather than Zechariah responding in faith, he responds in unbelief. And because of this unbelief, the angel says, that because of your unbelief, you'll be made mute. But the angel says, just wait. And this dis- I'm going to discipline you because you're responding in unbelief. But this discipline will lead you, as we'll see later, to worship God. To again have faith in God um, and, and trust Him again. And so turn with me now as we look at, 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 at Luke 57. Sorry, I want us to see the background here so we can really have an understanding of what we've read. Uh, what we're going to look at. And so look with me now at verse 57. Verse 57 of Luke chapter 1 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So here we see the angel's promise fulfilled in Elizabeth, giving birth to their son. What joy must have filled their hearts. A miracle has happened. Remember, this couple is advanced in years and have been unable to have a baby. However, if you look back at verse 37, it says, Nothing is impossible with God. After the birth... The time has come to name the child, right? So after John has been born, now the time has come to, of course, name their child. And back in those days, uh, in Jesus' days, uh, the, the, if it was a son, it would be named after the father, 
right? That was the way it was supposed to go. And so we look, if you look, you don't, we're not going to read it, but if you look, the crowd is like, all right, Elizabeth, let's name him John or Zachariah because your husband's name is Zachariah. But look at verse 63. Verse 63, verse 63 says, Zachariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And then verse 64, as, as he's writing this and, and remembering back to when God, when the angel Gabriel said, you will bear a son and you shall name him John, right? He, he, he disbelieved in that moment. But now that John is here, right, Zechariah is responding in faith. And he's saying, no, his name will not be Zechariah, but his name will be John, like I was told, because I'm seeing this promise being fulfilled. So obviously, I, I can trust God that I can name him John and not after me, Zechariah, Right? And look at verse 64. And it says, Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing to God. So we see that the first words that came out of John's mouth was blessing to God. Right? Um, and as, as, we, as we look at John's name, I love I loved kind of looking into what John means. And John literally means God is merciful. So they're naming their son John, which means God is merciful. And this shows us that God is preparing to show mercy to you and I as sinners and to remember his promise to save. John will be the forerunner of Christ. And remember back with me that there in, in, the, in the moment of 400 years of darkness, right? But as we see here, the, the fulfillment of the promise, Christ coming. And so as, as darkness is there, is there, but we can take hope that salvation is on the horizon by Christ coming. So as we turn to our main text now, knowing a little background, I want us to see that Zechariah's first words were a blessing to God. He was made mute because of his unbelief, but here we see that Zechariah, after having at least nine months to contemplate the angel's words and see his wife become pregnant, he breaks out in praise. He breaks out in worship. He saw his God continue to be faithful and responds in faith by praising him. Let us be a people that respond in that way as we as we know God's promises if we know the word of God we can trust him that in his perfect timing he will fulfill his promises and let that lead us to a Zechariah here let that lead us to praise let that lead us to worship him that we have a promise keeping God so as we jump into our main text today uh, knowing a little background now let's read 67 through 71 as John uh, I mean Zechariah continues uh, to, to speak blessing uh, on, to God so look with me at verse 67 and it says, as his, and, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So we see here in verse 67 that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, meaning he spoke God's word. Just as we saw last week when in Tanner speaking about Mary, Mary was well equipped with God's word. As we, as we read that last week, it was filled with Old Testament scripture, with the word of God. Right? We see here in the same way that Zechariah was well nourished in his word and God's word and therefore by the power of the Spirit was able to be the mouthpiece of God. It is said, uh, some commentators say that uh, Zechariah alludes to and quotes over 33 Old Testament passages just in these 12 verses. 
And that's just amazing to know. And that again points to Zechariah knowing the Old Testament, right? Being a man of the Word of God. And, and, and again, 33 Old Testament passages, which some, we will look at some of those today. And I told Heather at our community group Wednesday that if you want some, uh, some more of this, man, we'll meet that in the corner over here after the worship service and we'll spend some more hours looking at these Old Testament promises because it's just amazing to see that all of this is pointing to Christ. So a question I want to ask you today is how well versed are you in God's Word? Do you meditate and dwell on God's Word often? Not for the boasting but to be a mouthpiece for God. I pray, and I know it's Tanner's prayer that we, as we pray this week, I pray that, and we pray that we would be a church that is well-versed in God's word so that we can be a mouthpiece for God in this community. As we know that our community, your family, our, my family, our, the people we work with need hope. And the way that they receive true hope is through the word of God. So let us be people of the word. Let us be creatures of the word so that we can give hope to people who need it. So Zechariah begins to speak. He starts off by blessing God for God's blessing. He thanks the Lord, the great I am, the God of Israel, God who is everlasting to everlasting, God who is their protector, provider, promise keeper, and father. And what does Zechariah thank him for? Verse 68 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. We see here similar language that reminds us of when God visited his enslaved people in Egypt and redeemed them. And by the way, this word visited is not just somebody knocking on the door and saying hello, like we, like we think of visiting, but this word visited in, in the Greek means cared for. So when God visits us, or when God visits here in this text, and we look back when God visits his people enslaved in Egypt, it's not just, hey, how's it going? But it's, hey, I'm here, I'm caring for you, I'm visiting you, I see what you're going through, and I want to visit you, and I want to care for you, and the way I'm going to do that is redeem you through my, through my son Jesus. So I thought that was amazing to point out. It's not just visit, but it's a word that shows that he cares for us. So the word redeemed uh, means a release from bondage through the payment of a price. Just as God redeemed Israel from Egypt, so God is bringing redemption to his people that he, will, that he will purchase through Christ paying our debt we owe because of our sin. We see here also, if you look at those words visited and redeemed, you see that they're in past tense, right? Visited and redeemed, right? And I think Tanner mentioned that last week, when God promises something, it is sure as done, right? It's not, hey, I may visit you in the future. I may redeem you. Right? But he's saying, this is going to happen. Right? I'm going to redeem you. I will visit you, and I will call you mine. So although Jesus Christ hasn't come yet on the scene, again, we see here that the sun is dawning in the distance. Christ is coming. Zechariah reminds, as we move on to verse 69 and 70, uh, or as we look through more of 69 to 71, we see Zechariah remind us of the first covenant that God promised to King David. Look with me again at 69 and 71. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. If we look back um, in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13, we see the prophet Nathan tell David, King David, that he will have a son who will build uh, a temple for God, which is referring to Solomon. 
but then an ultimate successor will, would be established his, will establish his throne forever. Look with me at 2 Samuel. I think it's on the board up here. It's 12b through 13. It says, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from my body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. This great promise was said long before Zechariah of Jesus being from the line of David. We saw this similar language last week. If you look back with me at verse 32 and 33, uh, we, we talked about this. It says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we see here with the dawn of King Jesus coming, this promise in 2 Samuel coming to fulfillment. As I was going through this text this week, I was just I was telling my wife, I was like, this is amazing. Like, just to, to look back at all these Old Testament verses and, and in their context, of course, but they are all pointing to Christ's coming, which is just amazing. I just, I just wanna, I want us to understand that, that everything is pointing to Christ. So look with me at verse 69 again, uh, which as we look at it, it says, the horn of salvation. Right? He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. When it says horn of salvation, it is referring to might or strength. This phrase comes from the Old Testament where horns are often used as the symbol of an animal's power and strength. And this last week at our community group, I was talking with Chris, and I, wish, I wanted to throw the picture on the board, but I, I told him I'm not that technical. Um, but after service, I want you to come and look at this picture that Chris sent me. He, he's an avid hunter, and he uh, hung this elk up on his wall, and it's this picture of this huge elk that's, if my wife stood up, it'd be about her height. <laughs> or a little bit taller maybe. So it's about four and something feet tall, and it's this huge horn on this elk, and it's just amazing and magnificent, but also scary, right? I would not want to be, I'm sure you were far away when you shot that thing, because that thing would hurt you. But as we look at that, it, it reminds us, the horns on animals remind us of their strength and their power. So by looking at this picture, uh, we definitely see strength. And so when, when the horn of salvation is referring to Christ, and we see that Christ is the horn of salvation, we see that Jesus is mighty to save. He is mighty to save us from our enemies, as verse 71 points out. In Zechariah's time, they were suppressed by the Roman Empire, to which he partly might be referring to, but as we'll see, he's referring to salvation that comes through Jesus for our sin. In order for people in Zechariah's time and in our present time to be saved, we must have someone mightier than you and I to come and save us. You and I are born separated from God because of our sin and enslaved to it. The Bible says that we are children of wrath, following after the prince of the power of the air, which is referring to Satan. Each of us deal with past failures, such as adultery, lying, cheating, and multiple other things that we're ashamed of. By the Davidic horn being raised up in a mighty display of power in the birth of Jesus and one day on the cross, we have the opportunity, you and I have the opportunity to be redeemed by Christ spilling out his blood for you and I. Isaiah 53, 5 says, By his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. 
whatever you have done, know that this strong horn of salvation has come for you and come for me so that we may be saved completely and eternally. Look with me now at verse 72 and 75, through 75. 72 says, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers Abraham to grant us, that we, be del- being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. These, ver- these verses again remind us of God's covenant and this, this, this promise is going even further back than the, the covenant that was made with David. It's going all the way back to the covenant he made with Abraham, which is in the first book of, book of Genesis. In Genesis 12, we see uh, again the first promise that he promises Abraham uh, that he will make Abraham and his offspring into a great nation and all the people of the earth will be blessed through him. And when God's making this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham is, doesn't even have a child yet. But yet God is making this promise. And I remember, when God makes a promise, it is sure is done. The promise that we see here, Zechariah referencing in 72 and 73, is yet a greater affirmation that God swore to Abraham in Genesis 22. Again saying, Through you, Abraham, and your offspring, shall all the nations be blessed. So through Christ coming onto the scene soon, God is being faithful to his promises he made long ago. He is remembering his oath. He swore to Abraham. This should bring us great comfort that we serve a God who remembers and follows through with his promises. The mercy promised in verse 72 is referring back to Micah in chapter 7, verse 19 through 20, which says, You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea, You will show faithfulness to Jacob, which is Israel, and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. There's that word sworn, right? Just as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. By God sending Jesus, he is fulfilling the promise to bless all nations by showing mercy and kindness by casting your sin and my sin upon his son. If you are a Christian, listen to me. This should bring amazement Wonder and an ending joy that you are included in this promise. This promise that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. That through Abraham and his offspring, all the nations shall be blessed. If you are in Christ, you are included in the nations being blessed. You have been blessed by being forgiven of your sin through Jesus and brought back into a right relationship with God. Our God is truly a promise-keeping God. We see Zechariah say in 74, uh, through this oath of promised mercy, that we are delivered from the hand of our enemies. Again, Zechariah may be referring to political, uh, uh, the Roman Empire and they're suppressing them, but ultimately we see that Zechariah is ultimately meaning sin, death, and Satan, who are our true enemies. Why does God promise this oath? Why does he deliver us from, from the enemy of death and Satan and sin? Look at, look at verse 74. It says, That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The reason uh, verse 74 gives is as to why God has redeemed us is so that we might serve him. The goal of God saving us is so that we might worship 
2 Corinthians 5.18 says, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19 of 2 Corinthians 5 says, entrusting us Christians to the message of reconciliation. Verse 20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So as we see those verses, we are saved for a reason. We are saved for God to make his appeal through us. We are saved to bring reconciliation to the world, right? To show them Jesus. Christian, does your life willfully show joyful service to God? We are to serve God without fear, as it says. I love what Zephaniah 3.15 says, The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. You shall never again fear evil. This is amazing to know that the judgment that stood against you has been cleared, taken away. And how has this happened? Through Christ. Therefore, you can serve God without fear because you've been reconciled to him through Christ. We are to serve God in holiness and righteousness all our days, as the text says. How do we do this? One thing that we, as Christians we need, to, we need to really, I think, to um, meditate on and and. and and have in our hearts is Isaiah 53, as we quoted earlier. Isaiah 53 is a chapter that reminds us that Jesus has come to redeem us by ultimately giving his life for us on the cross. When we remember this and seek God daily through his word and prayer, we will desire to live a life of holiness, meaning being set apart from the world, and will pursue righteousness, meaning to seek to honor God in all we do, say, and think. Christian, does your life follow the pattern of verse 74 and 75. I know you may meet and I meet people uh, a lot of the times that say I'm a Christian, but when I look at their life and the way they live their life and, and what they know about the gospel, what they don't know, that I don't judge them in those moments, but I, I get saddened because they're thinking that they're in Christ, but their life reflects nothing of Christ. I pray, as we said earlier, that we as a church will be a people who are most thankful of what Christ has done and therefore reflect the pattern of, of privileged service to our loving Father. I was reminded this morning as I was reading through this article called Voice of the Martyr, I encourage everyone to subscribe to that, it's free. Um, but this brother in Laos who became a Christian uh, was cast out of his teaching position into a rural village uh, because he was sharing faith sharing his faith with these uh, teachers and his students. And they cast him out of his teaching position into a deep part of the jungle that was hard to get to and said there's no running water, no electricity, so they were persecuting him. But listen to what he says. He says, I want more brothers and sisters in Christ on this earth. My heart wants this, no matter the cost. I agonize over that um, because I want that to be the desire of my heart. That my, uh, my heart is that I want to see more brothers and sisters on this earth. And no matter the cost. And I pray that Redeemer Church, I pray that you and I would be able to pursue that together. And that that would be the heartbeat of this church. To see other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so... In order for us to know that and to be reminded of that daily is to remember that gospel for yourself. So now that through Christ's wounds you have been healed. And so therefore you have made a servant of God and have given the privilege to serve him. 
And so let's do that. Uh, let's move on to 76 through 77. And it says, And you, child, Zechariah still speaking, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So we see in these two verses Zechariah talking about his newborn son, John. Throughout these verses, this is the only time he mentions John, which is kind of uh, amazing to think about because they've been waiting so long to have a son, and now he is here. But yet, as we read these 12 verses, these are the only two verses that he mentions his son, John. No doubt, Zechariah is so happy to have John as his son, but here we see that Zechariah understood John's purpose and recognized the subordinate position of his son. Zechariah remembered when the angel back, as we looked in verse 16 to 17, told him the purpose of his son John. It says he is to prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist's work of preparing the way was prophesied back in Malachi 3.1, which again, we're looking back now to Malachi 3.1 and that, that promise being fulfilled. I think it's on the screen. And it says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So we see in, the, in this text again that uh, in Luke that this is why John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for Christ and that was again prophesied in Malachi and we see that coming true in this text. This again shows the glory of our promise-keeping God. So how was John pre- to prepare the way of Christ? Look at verse 77. He was pre- he, the way he was to prepare was to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. One commentator states about John the Baptist is that he will till the soil of Israel's heart. He will not be the Savior, but John will make ready for the Savior by teaching people how they are to be saved. John is a giant index pointer, index finger pointing the way of, to God's salvation from sin. It's kind of like at the football games, those people that hold those big foam things that get in your way and you paid a bunch of money and then you can't see the game, Right? It's picture of John is that way, that he is this big foam index finger pointing, hey, don't look at me. I'm not the one that's bringing salvation. I'm preparing the way for the one who is to come, who I'm not worthy to untie his shoe. Right? He's pointing to Christ coming. As we read earlier, the, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist was teaching that righteousness does not come through the law, but through Christ and his grace. We cannot earn God's favor by our outward good works because our inward hearts are helpless and terminally sick with sin, which is an offensive offense against God who is holy. God in his holiness and just anger will punish the sinner forever unless they are forgiven. As we look now in these next last two verses, um, this is why I love verse 78 and 79 because of that last statement that God will and is just to punish you and I as sinners uh, because of our sin. He is just to condemn us to hell forever because of our sin against him. But I love these last two verses. Uh, Look with me at verse 78 and 79 and the hope that it brings. It says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
For God to be a God of tender mercy is so sweet to know. I was thinking, now that I have a son, uh, that most of the time I want to show him not just mercy, but tender mercy. Because I love him and I care for him. And I want to, as a loving father, I want to discipline him and point him in the right way to go. But not just to do that because I have to, because I want to. Because I want to show him tenderness in that. And that's what we see God here. God is a loving father who not only just shows mercy, but shows mercy with tenderness. He is gentle and kind to us who are broken and ashamed and need to literally be brought back to life. I love what Spurgeon says on this. He says, he says this about the tender mercies of God and how it applies to us today. When you come and hear the gospel, be sure of this. God has visited you in tender mercy and that by the gospel, he tells you that there is a way of salvation. This is the way that God shows his, tender, his, his mercy and tenderness by pointing us to the way of salvation. You and I do not deserve salvation because of our sin. God is just, to, again, to condemn us to hell because of what we've done. But God in his tender, tender, tenderly mercy has sent his son Jesus to give us hope, to give us a privilege, to give us the opportunity to know him, to be forgiven of all the shame that you feel and have felt in the past, and as maybe you feel shame this morning, thinking back to what you've done yesterday, or uh, even today, this morning, what you thought, um, and you're just in your, as you look back in your life, God has come for you to show you mercy through His Son Jesus by Him dying on the cross. Again, I wish we had time to look in other places to see this more, but here uh, we see that our God is defined by being tenderly merciful. We see how our sins can be forgiven by, look with me at the end of verse 78 and 79. It says, To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Right? And in verse 78, Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Our God shows tender mercy by sending his son Jesus. This is what Zechariah is referring to when he says, The sunrise shall visit us. Zechariah, again, we're going to look back in the Old Testament. Zechariah is referencing Malachi 4.2, which says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Look at who the us is in verse 79. It says, To give light to those who sit in darkness. Um, and in verse 70 it says, Shall visit us. And so the us in this context is the Israelites. Um, who are pictured here, as a, as a commentator says, a caravan has lost its way and has been, been overtaken by night. They are stranded in utter darkness and therefore hopeless. We too, you and I, are like the Israelites, stuck in our sin, which is defined in the Bible as darkness. We are blind to the things of God, without hope. We wallow in our sin and continue to sit under the shadow of death. I'm reminded of Romans 6.23. It says, For the wages of sin is death. So that, that is our state before we are in Christ, that we are in utter darkness and under the shadow of death without hope. Yet, off in the distance, as Zechariah describes here, in the midst of the vast darkness, a light begins to dawn. This light, as we have seen, is referencing the coming of the Savior of the world who is defined as the light of the world. 
As the light is dawning, darkness is fleeing. Hope replaces hopelessness. In our sin, we sit in darkness like prisoners locked in a dungeon. But when Christ comes into our heart, he brings light and therefore makes a way for eternal peace in our lives and guides us continually in the way of peace. So if you are in Christ, as St. Corinthians talks about, the veil has been lifted off and now you see God for, his, for all who he is for his, in his glory. right? And this has come because Christ has shown the light in your heart. And now you have an understanding of that. And that's just amazing that we were blind, but yet Christ entered into our lives in spite of our sin to redeem us from the pit. And now we don't sit under the the shadow of death anymore, but we are in the light forever and eternally. So in closing, I I want you to seriously ask yourself as we sit and meditate and as we respond in a few moments, ask yourself, do I know this horn of salvation? Do I have the light, this light in, in my life? Do I have the knowledge of salvation? Have I been delivered from the shadow of death? Am I serving God without fear? Am I walking in the way of peace? If you are not, I pray that today you see Jesus for who he is and that he has, came to re- he has come to redeem you. Again, as we saw in that quote of Spurgeon, you sit here today not, not just haphazardly, but you sit here on purpose. God has brought you into this room to show you tender mercy by, by why I hope is that the gospel is going forth to you and you realize, if you haven't realized before, that Jesus loves you and wants to show you tender mercy and he, the way he did that was by dying on the cross for your sins. And you can be redeemed and be brought into the light this morning. I'm reminded of John 3.16, says, simply says, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You have that eternal life in Christ. If you do not, me and Tanner will be in the back and we'd love to communicate more of the truth with you and talk with you through that. And if you do know Jesus, I want us to remember again that this time and season, the whole, and it's, and the whole storyline of Scripture is pointing to Jesus' first advent. I pray we would, we would marvel and rejoice in our promised, keeping, tenderly merciful God. And as we partake here in a moment in the Lord's Supper, uh, I, I, let us proclaim the Lord's death on our behalf with joy until the second, second advent of Christ. Let me pray.